1: In politics, they often say that geography is destiny. And for China, that could not be more true. China has the world's longest land borders. 14 different countries, neighboured on land, five more by sea, as well as Taiwan, the self-governed island it claims. Xi Jinping is achieving his goal of making China a global power, but his expectation was that close neighbours would also fall into line. But on China's borders, resentments fester. conflicts simmer, and China's growing strength is causing alarm. I'm David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. And this week, I'm joined by our Asia diplomatic editor, Jeremy Page. We're asking, why is it so hard for Xi Jinping to turn his backyard into a sphere of influence? This is Drumtar from The Economist. Jeremy, welcome to Drumtar. Alice is away this week, but we are delighted to have you on. I was just trying to work out how long we have known each other, and I can't work out whether to be kind of amazed or very dismayed <laughs> that it's more than 20 many. Oh, how long? It's before Starbucks opened in Beijing. That's what I'd worked out.
0: Almost a quarter of a century.
1: There was another century. We knew each other in the last century as baby journalists. And I soon have to send you something silver. So anyway, you're now in Delhi. You're doing fantastic work covering Asian diplomacy, in particular China. And you have been writing some really interesting stuff recently from Delhi about China and its periphery. And it's a really important question for the Chinese leadership, how well it gets on with that kind of ring of countries that surround it. But they often get overlooked those relationships between China and its neighbours, why did you decide that this was just the right moment to take a close look at what is going on?
0: Well, one of the starting points for this was that we're coming up to the 10-year anniversary of this very important meeting in Beijing when Xi Jinping laid out his plans for improving China's relations with its neighbours. And If we look back over the last decade or so, what's interesting to me is that Xi Jinping has arguably achieved many of his goals in terms of expanding his own power domestically and enhancing China's global standing. But he's fallen quite far short of the goals that he set out for his own neighborhood in that meeting. And that's a real problem because, as you know, David, China's rulers have for many centuries conceived of the world as sort of concentric circles of influence emanating from the emperor. And I think to a large extent, Xi Jinping sees the world in similar terms.
1: It's the tributary system, right? All those kind of barbarian princes coming and handing over gifts to the emperor and getting kind of bolts of silk in return. When I talk to Chinese scholars, and they're talking about just how incredibly kind of tolerant and modern and multicultural and non-judgmental Chinese foreign policy is, They'll throw into the mix that it takes the very best of that tributary system. The fact that the Chinese emperor was kind of friends and trade partners with all kinds of very different civilizations, didn't try and impose his own vision of values or religion or now obviously human rights. So they're they're getting quite into the idea that the tributary system actually is a kind of brilliant, excellent Chinese tradition that is due for a bit of a revival.
0: Yes, that's right. So they're putting a kind of a 21st century spin on the idea. If you think of those sort of concentric circles, you know, right at the center, Xi Jinping's made himself the core of the Communist Party leadership. And then if you sort of move out towards the edges of China, he's cracked down on dissent, especially in border areas like Xinjiang and Hong Kong. And then if you move just beyond China's borders, uh, he's been trying to bind neighboring countries to China more closely through trade and infrastructure, especially Belt and Road is a big part of that. And then On a global scale, he's been expanding China's influence far from its own shores as well as in international organizations and advocating what he calls a community of shared future for mankind as a sort of alternative world order centered to a large extent on China. But if you look at that middle circle, if you like, the the sort of neighboring countries, I think that's the real weak point in this plan.
1: I'm so glad we're doing this episode because we spend so long talking about does China want to run the world? Does China want to kind of impose its model? But actually sitting here in Beijing, they have to think about their own immediate neighborhood. And, you know, we mentioned in the introduction, China has 14 direct land borders. And that is something that just takes up a huge amount of anxiety and hard thought in China's capital. So let's let's literally kind of imagine the map of China. And if you're Xi Jinping and his diplomatic team looking at your periphery, what do they have to deal with? What kind of neighbourhood are they in?
0: So let's work clockwise around the map. Starting from Beijing, if you look due north, 12 o'clock, there's Russia, a very complicated relationship for obvious reasons.
1: A aggressive neo-imperialist nuclear power that is currently at war with the West. You then move round the clock and you've got North Korea, a place with not a lot of friends, but China sees it as a big buffer zone. Refugees, nuclear tests, any number of nightmares.
0: And then if you keep going around the clock, you get to South Korea and Japan, two of America's closest uh, military allies. You've got American troops stationed in both of those countries and they're now strengthening their alliances with the United States.
1: As you enter the seas, it is not smooth sailing. You have Taiwan, the island that China claims is its own. You have the Philippines, lots of disputes right now. Fishing boats getting quite aggressive with each other. You've got Malaysia, territorial disputes. And now you're around Southeast Asia, the land borders. Lots of problems here, I
0: Right, next up is Vietnam. That has a maritime dispute with China, which is ongoing. It also fought a war with China over its land border in 1979, which sort of ended in a stalemate. Then there's Laos, which has pretty good relations with China, but has run into some very severe debt problems because of Chinese
1: projects there. Then you got Myanmar, which is basically in a really serious political crisis after a military coup and uh, accused of genocide of its own Rohingya minority.
0: And then you're at India, and China's relations with India have taken a real turn for the worse over the last few years, after a very nasty clash on their disputed border. India is now moving a lot closer to the United States. You've also got Bhutan and Nepal. They are home to large communities of Tibetan Buddhists. India also has the dominant say in their defence and foreign policy.
1: Then you get to Pakistan, a very long-standing friend of China's, but also a source of instability, always fears about islamic militants crossing over into xinjiang and afghanistan which is a real headache for china they don't officially recognize the taliban government there although i have to say jeremy there are taliban diplomats now on the circuit in beijing although we have not been at the same cocktail parties just yet
0: (laughs) (laughs) then we're into central asia you've got tajikistan kyrgyzstan and kazakhstan
1: where they have had a near coup i believe
0: Yes, that's right. Last year, a lot of uh, serious political instability in Kazakhstan. And then you've got Mongolia just sort of sitting on top of China. And arguably, in those four countries in Central Asia, China has made some inroads over the last few years, but not as many as you might expect. And there is still very strong anti-Chinese sentiment in those countries, a lot of concerns about China's growing influence. And of course, in former Soviet Central Asia, you also still have very, very strong Russian influence.
1: So I've heard Chinese scholars say with kind of envy that America, its supreme rival, has it easy because America's only neighbours are Mexico, which is sometimes difficult, but a massive economic partner, and Canada, which is a pretty easy neighbour compared to, say, Afghanistan. I think we can agree.
0: Exactly. Um, China's is a tough neighbourhood.
1: So, Jeremy... When you were doing your research on this piece, what was she's starting ambition for his relationship with his periphery? You mentioned that really important meeting a decade ago, which I think was the Peripheral Work Conference. Do I have that
0: title correct? You do well remember, David. You're obviously paying attention back in 2013.
1: Or I am a nerd, one of the two. <laughs> but um, let's go back to that meeting when she outlined his goals for neighbourhood diplomacy. What was his kind of wish list for a neighbourhood... That would help China's rise.
0: So what was so interesting about this meeting is that he talked very explicitly about how he wanted to try and improve relations with China's neighbours, not just economically, but in terms of security, politics, culture, media, people to people exchanges. How is Xi
1: Jinping doing? How is it scoring on its own terms? So
0: economically, absolutely no doubt, China has greatly expanded its own influence with its neighbors. It's by far the dominant trade partner for all of them, I think. China is a very significant source of foreign investment and financial assistance in a lot of these countries as well. But if you look at those other areas that Xi Jinping highlighted in that meeting back in 2013, political influence, security, culture, on those measures... I think it's fair to say that China is falling quite far short of those original goals.
1: What about the next item on your checklist? You talked about cultural power or soft power, I guess. I sit here in Beijing, see the enormous sums being spent on Chinese cultural power, whether you're looking at Chinese state media trying to operate in its neighbours, funding journalists from those countries to tell cheerful stories about China, but also, you know, scholarships for officials, and young people from these neighbouring countries. How is that working out for that Xi Jinping ambition to make people feel warm in their hearts about China? Well, not
0: very well, in short. It's hard to measure the results, but... There are some interesting public opinion surveys which have been done recently. It's hard to do those kind of surveys in all of China's neighbors, for obvious reasons, North Korea, for example. You obviously can't do that kind of work there. But in places where those surveys have been done, there have been some really interesting results which have shown that people really worry about Chinese influence. There was a recent one done in Southeast Asia which showed that more people expressed distrust of China than trust of it in Malaysia, Myanmar, Vietnam, and the Philippines. And Japan was more trusted in all six of China's neighbors in Southeast Asia. So I think that's a very important point. And the other thing is that if you talk to people in the political and business elite in these places, they will often talk in favor of closer commercial ties with China because they stand to benefit from them. But if you ask them where they choose to invest their own money, where they go on holiday, where they educate their children, they will almost always say, in the West,
1: That's such a good point. Until you see the elites taking their holidays at a villa in Hainan and sending their kids to Tsinghua rather than Harvard, there are reasons to doubt China's soft power. And the third item on your list was security. And I'm glad you put that there because we often think about foreign relations as about this kind of big, confident China looking outwards and deciding how much the world it wants to run. But as you know so well, Jeremy, from having been based here for so many years, here in Beijing, There is so much paranoia about a world of threats. And I was really struck. I was looking at a paper on China's peripheral diplomacy and a Chinese scholar just kind of wrote straight out that for China, that borderland, the immediate neighbourhood is a theatre where China has to defend its national security, its sovereign unity and struggle against separatist threats that might kind of infiltrate the border. So it's not all about Silk Road trade caravans and opportunities. China looks at its immediate neighbourhood and sees threats trying to get in to fortress China. Is that how you think they see it?
0: Yes, I think it is. And there's a real tension between that and those aspirations that Xi Jinping outlined back in 2013. And you can see this playing out in China's dealings with its neighbors in the way that the agencies that were responsible for territorial issues in particular, so the military, the Coast Guard, other law enforcement agencies, they really felt empowered by Xi Jinping to take very robust action and to be as assertive as possible over the last decade. And their actions often came at the expense of other officials who were tasked with improving commercial ties, improving cultural ties, people-to-people ties, all the other things that Xi Jinping wanted.
1: No, I can imagine. I mean, you're sitting in India, right? And if you're a Chinese businessman trying to sell digital apps on India's hundreds of millions of mobile phones, and then you've got the Chinese army killing Indian soldiers on the border, it's not exactly helpful. Right. So Jeremy, we've been around the kind of the clock face and we've been all around China's periphery. Is there one place, one country that for you incarnates Xi Jinping's ambitions to win over his neighborhood. But that one country also is the place to see how he's falling short? Yes,
0: it's obviously quite hard to pick one place that really encapsulates all of this. But I think that the place that comes closest is Kazakhstan. That's former Soviet Central Asian state. It's where Xi Jinping launched the Belt and Road Initiative back in 2013. There are all sorts of reasons why it should suit Kazakhstan to be getting much closer to China and why Chinese influence there should be expanding rapidly. But I went there on a reporting trip recently and found that there were still a lot of underlying tensions and a lot of concerns amongst the local people about China's influence.
1: Well, we will be back in a moment to hear all about Jeremy's trip to Khorgos and to hear why even in Kazakhstan, which does so well from its engagement with China, people are wary. First, we wanted to remind listeners that you can read much more about China and its neighbourhood in the Economist, but you will need to be a subscriber. So, if you're not already, we have a free 30-day digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com/drumoffer to find out more. Hiring
0: for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. So David, here's a voice note that I recorded for you on the border between Kazakhstan and China. So I've just got to Kazakhstan's border with China in a place called Horgos, uh, which is one of the major border crossings between the two sides. And it's a fairly surreal experience for me because I came here once before uh, from the Chinese side back in 2013. That was just after China had unveiled... The Belt and Road program and announced that Horgos was going to be a major land port on the new trade route between China and Europe. So this time I've come from the Kazakh side to try and get a sense of what has and hasn't changed over the last decade.
1: Jeremy, I am mad with envy because I am a big fan of land borders. I love the fact that you can just walk a few feet and everything changes. So tell us about this China-Kazakh free trade zone. And what did you find when you finally ended up on the Kazakh side? Well,
0: you know, it was a great trip. I love that part of the world. And I share your appreciation for border crossings and sort of remote locations, especially. So I flew up from Delhi to Almaty, which is Kazakhstan's former capital, now the sort of second city. And then it was about a four hour drive across the steppe. And it's pretty dramatic because you're driving across this mostly empty landscape. It's just grassland stretching into the distance and then suddenly you see sort of mirage like these high rise buildings on the horizon rising from the steppe and as you get closer you realize that's the Chinese side of the border and um, when I Went in 2013 and crossed over from the Chinese side. There was a huge contrast. On the Chinese side, you already had about a dozen or so high-rise buildings. And on the Kazakh side, it was literally just a couple of cargo containers with some grannies selling sort of honey and Russian chocolate and that kind of stuff. So this time, there was a bit more construction on the Kazakh side. say so there was a, you know, a couple of two-story buildings, which were half completed. Not particularly busy, though. But on the Chinese side, there's been an enormous amount of development.
1: And are there still Kazakh grannies selling honey, or is mostly action on the Chinese side?
0: No, no sign of the Kazakh grannies anymore. In fact, on the Kazakh side, it's mostly now stalls run by Chinese traders who are selling South Korean and Hong Kong and Singapore goods for the few Chinese tourists who come across. But the real action is on the Chinese side. And so when I went across, I recorded you another voice note. Okay, so I've just crossed to the Chinese side, which you get to by walking across a small bridge, the center of which is technically the border between the two countries. And so I'm back on Chinese soil, which is a a pretty strange sensation. There's lots of Chinese police vans patrolling and uh, plenty of cameras, of course. And it's pretty much as I remember from about 10 years ago, uh, only way bigger. Uh, There are many more of the high-rise buildings than I recall. Uh, Most of them are huge shopping centers, just crammed full of little stores selling everything from uh, sneakers, uh, clothes, Rubber, tires seem to be a popular thing to buy here.
1: Anything specifically Kazakh that the Chinese are aiming at?
0: So there were a lot of fishing goods. Fishing is very popular in Kazakhstan. There's a lot of fur and leather. Many of the fur and leather jackets that you find across the former Soviet Union are actually made in China. And the whole area was just full of hundreds of Kazakhs milling around, filling their bags with as much as possible of this stuff because either you can't get it in Kazakhstan or it's just a lot more expensive there.
1: Oh, my goodness. That takes me back to when I first worked with you 25 years ago. Do you remember the Yabalu market? Yes, of course. And those vast bales of kind of Chinese fur coats being sort of wrapped up with sellotape and shipped back to Russia. A lot of
0: fake CDs and VCDs as well.
1: Did you go crazy? Was there a bit of retail therapy uh, <laughs> on the side of this reporting trip? Did you buy anything in the market? No, but I was almost sold a
0: handheld massage machine, which an elderly Chinese lady came up to me and tried to sell me. Somebody's just uh, come over to offer me a handheld massage machine. This uh,
1: is什么东西啊按摩器啊啊啊多少钱？那个三十。三十块那个呢？那个一百。哦。你先试一下可以吗？啊。Uh,
0: uh, <laughs>
1: oh, that's That's a pretty expensive uh, massage machine. I think There was 30 and 100 kuai, is that right? She was offering you? Yes, I think she was testing out the 30 choir one on me. Um, it, was, you know, it, was, it was a very pleasant experience. That sounds a very cool visit, but not very balanced between the two countries in terms of trade.
0: Yes, that's right. That duty-free zone is sort of a microcosm for the whole relationship because you really see the imbalance, You know, the lack of infrastructure on the Kazakh side, the lack of Kazakh goods that are being sold, the fact that most of the jobs on the Kazakh side are also done by Chinese people. And, you know, I think that sort of visualizes a lot of the problems in the relationship. Kazakhstan has benefited in many ways, but because most of what it has to offer China is natural resources, it's oil and gas, it's mining, and then you've got these big transport projects. But none of these projects really do a whole lot in terms of providing employment for local people. That's one of the problems.
1: So if ordinary people in China's neighbourhood are not sure they're seeing the benefits, there is the suspicion, right, Jeremy, that actually this is China's pitch is really to the elites of these countries. And I think for a lot of people, even watching here in China, that power play, the elite to elite power play, really came vividly to life when we saw Xi Jinping host all the Central Asian leaders for a gathering in Xi'an, the capital of the old Silk Road. And, you know, when he saw the videos of the ceremony that he organised for them, even their arrival in their own kind of individual limousines, it did look like a massive imperial Chinese power play. Let's let's watch that video together. So they have to kind of walk a very, very long way on a red carpet before they get met by Xi Jinping, and they look a little lonely, I think.
0: Right, and this has become a feature of sort of Xi Jinping's sort of diplomatic functions. He always likes to get people to walk a very long distance up a carpet to come and shake hands with him. So it's a sort of his equivalent of Putin's long table.
1: It's a serious power play, isn't it? And that is a very, very serious chunk of masonry there. It's a kind of multi-story Chinese pagoda. Is that a, actually a very important ancient bit of architecture we're looking at?
0: No, it is absolutely not. It is, in fact, a a new build. It's called Tang Paradise, and it's essentially a sort of Tang Dynasty themed park that was built essentially to attract tourists and is now being used uh, for diplomatic functions, apparently.
1: So he took them to sort of Tang Dynasty Disneyland, and now we're looking at something that is basically like an Olympic opening ceremony, right? We've got the drummers, we've got the supposed Tang Dynasty costumes, the archers, the sort of the dancing. What do you think the effect is if you're one of the Central Asian leaders looking at this massive ceremony put on for you? So I think
0: there's an element of them being flattered by it. You know, it is very impressive. And these are not, generally speaking, sort of democratic leaders themselves. They're impressed by displays of power. So, you know, there's an element of them enjoying the whole scene. But I think there's a very clear subtext, which is, you know, China is the dominant power in this relationship. And these leaders are coming as representatives of lesser powers on its borders to pay their respects.
1: And Jeremy, you're absolutely right. You know, this is a neighborhood, Central Asia, where sticking yourself on a sort of pedestal as a golden statue is seen as perfectly normal behavior. But it's not an accident that they're in the old Tang Dynasty capital of China, right? Because the Tang Dynasty was the peak of that imperial tribute system. Is that not correct? Right.
0: And that was the period in which the Chinese Empire really expanded into Central Asia, including into parts of, you know, present day Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and even bits of Kazakhstan, I think.
1: And Central Asian analysts that you spoke to, how did they see that ceremony? Was it just a kind of respectful party or did they see the kind of the power dynamics?
0: They definitely saw the power dynamic. And I spoke to one activist in Kazakhstan who described this as he said it looked like an emperor receiving tribal chieftains. So I think the imagery and the subtext was really not lost on a lot of people in Kazakhstan.
1: So, Jerem, we talked earlier about the gap between how regular public opinion sees this giant Chinese neighbour and maybe how elites have a relationship with it and they're looking for advantages and opportunities. In the Kazakh context, how does that work? Because my memory is that there have been anti-Chinese protests in Kazakhstan, though.
0: Yes, it's a big part of the problem in Kazakhstan in that the elites benefited a lot from the relationship with China and they want that relationship to continue expanding. But if you talk to regular people, there is huge suspicion of China. And that's partly because of Soviet propaganda and Russian propaganda, which for many years played up the sort of Chinese threat and the sort of you know paranoia about its huge population just over the border. But more recently, it's also been fomented by China's own behavior, especially just over the border in Xinjiang.
1: That's so interesting because, of course, it's not only Uyghurs who are the largest Muslim minority, but there are also Kazakhs, many of whom are also Muslim in Xinjiang, and some of those have had a rough time as well.
0: Right. There were a lot of ethnic Kazakh Chinese nationals who ended up in the detention camps in Xinjiang. And they all have relatives in Kazakhstan. And I went on a reporting trip a few years back to go and speak to many of these family members. And I remember going to a a little NGO office that was helping some of these families. And there were just people lined up at the door and down the corridor. And inside this little NGO, they just had piles and piles of sort of files, photographs, Um, that these families were providing to try and make contact with them and to try and put pressure on the Kazakh government at the time to do more about it. So that's created a lot of resentment amongst ordinary Kazakh people. And then some of the more recent agreements between Kazakhstan and China, for instance, at the recent Central Asia Summit in Xi'an, Kazakhstan and China agreed to allow each other's nationals 30 days visa-free access. And government says that's going to benefit Kazakh business people and truck drivers. But if you talk to Kazakhs about it, they are extremely fearful that it's just going to lead to large numbers of Chinese people coming over the border and settling in Kazakhstan. And part of the problem is that they don't trust their own government on the Kazakh side. They're not confident in its own law enforcement capabilities.
1: So if China struggles sometimes to win the hearts and minds of regular people with its soft power, its cultural power, even its economic power, what about hard power? What about when things go wrong, when people are worried about terrorism or there's unrest? Do Central Asian leaders in a place like Kazakhstan, do they pick up the phone and call China to send, if not kind of the army, maybe some sort of counterterrorism police across the border?
0: It's a really interesting question because this is one thing that China's really been trying to push hard over the last few years, including as part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which involves China, Russia, and all the former Soviet Central Asian states. You do actually have a small team of Chinese paramilitary forces based in Tajikistan now. But Kazakhstan is really interesting because last year they had a very serious bout of political unrest, which was described by Kazakh officials at the time as an attempted coup. And notably, they did not call on China to intervene, but they turned instead to Russia, which ended up sending some of its own troops to help restore order there.
1: Why did Kazakhstan call in the Russian troops, not uh, Chinese? So
0: I think there's a number of reasons. You know, they do worry about Russia's continuing influence, but at the same time, they have very deep connections between the respective militaries and security forces, they know that Russia can handle this kind of operation, whereas China is relatively untested. And I think that, you know, wary as they are about giving Russia that kind of influence or allowing it to continue, they're not yet at the point where they're prepared to give China the power to effectively decide the outcome of a power struggle within their own elite.
1: I remember it was so interesting how Chinese state media and the Chinese foreign ministry framed that attempted coup back in 2022. because. My memory is that on the Central Asian side, or in Moscow, people understood that this was basically an elite internal power struggle. But for the Chinese side, it was all about the West stirring up trouble, stirring up colour revolutions. But my impression was that really didn't match what people in Kazakhstan thought had happened. So it looked like China just kind of talking to itself.
0: Right. And I think that's a big part of the problem is that China has its own Security interests, and so it's only really interested in cooperation in this sphere to the extent that it helps China.
1: And they can't help but look a bit heavy-handed when they roll out their kind of counterterrorism strike forces.
0: Exactly, and actually, there was a little episode when I was on the Chinese side of the border in Horgos, which I witnessed, and I recorded you a voice note on that as well. So that was interesting. Suddenly, about a dozen Chinese police fans pulled up and riot cops jumped out uh, with shields and batons and they cordoned off a small area just by the bridge that that forms the border and ordered the crowd to move back several steps. And uh, so for a while you couldn't actually get back to Kazakhstan, which was a little bit of a worry. But it turned out to be, I think, either just some sort of exercise, show of force, not quite sure what... Um, they stood there for about 10 or 15 minutes and then suddenly dispersed without actually doing much more. Uh, so anyway, the borders is back open and I think probably time to head back to Kazakhstan. So I'm, I'm still not sure exactly what happened there. It was an interesting moment, though, but it was clearly some kind of police exercise or just a sort of show of force to remind people there that they were being watched very closely. That much was very clear.
1: You're sounding impressively calm for a man who just watched his return to Kazakhstan sealed off by Chinese riot police for 10 or 15 minutes, but you get get points for that. And so that's kind of the problem in a nutshell, right? That China talks a big game about win-win cooperation and that it seeks harmony and peaceful relations, but it so often looks like a giant that when its interests are threatened is willing to throw its weight around.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. And there's also this fundamental tension, I think, between China's desire to be loved and to uh, get its neighbours to cooperate with it willingly, and its view of its own place in the region and the world.
1: So, Jeremy, here is the bottom line: Whenever we think that China is making mistakes that are damaging its own interests, my kind of basic position is that maybe we just haven't understood its own incentives that maybe we might not admire those incentives but actually by its own calculations it is taking the right risks but i must admit that i do struggle even trying to imagine myself as a kind of cynical chinese diplomat why it has chosen to pick fights with so many of its neighbors at the same time india where you are right now but also bad relations with japan with south korea with the philippines constant kind of grumbling problems South China Sea, and you know, as he very well described, its real struggles with the hearts and minds in Central Asia. Is China basically finally kind of it would like to be loved, but it will take fear if that gets it to where it wants to be? So it's not
0: dissimilar to how things work domestically on the political front because Xi Jinping would like to be loved. He would like to be genuinely uh, hugely popular, but they don't really have sufficient confidence in that, so they end up using coercive measures. And so there's a similar dynamic in the relationship with China's neighbors. They want to be loved. They want to get their way to have neighboring countries comply with their diplomatic initiatives and with their worldview voluntarily. But they end up having to use coercive practices a lot of the time. And that works to an extent. But I think the problem is that a lot of particularly smaller countries will naturally respond to that by hedging their bets, forming closer relationships with outside powers, which in this case often means the United States, but also Japan, South Korea, maybe the European Union. So I think that's the real problem for China, is that so many of these neighboring countries are hedging their bets.
1: Because people have choices, right? It's not the Tang Dynasty. It's not just that kind of emperor with those concentric circles radiating out in the kind of little barbarian kingdoms who have really nowhere else to turn. This is a complicated multipolar world that we're living in.
0: So I think this is the real nub of the issue. China is stuck in this way of thinking about the region, which is based to a large extent on its historical role, the tributary system, which we talked about earlier, but also on its grand assumptions about its own future, the idea that its economic and military power was going to continue growing at a similar pace. And now that that future looks a little less clear, that China's economy is slowing. We are facing a future in which China is probably one of several major powers which have a huge stake in Asia and wield enormous influence there. And those powers include America, they include Japan, they will increasingly include India over the next decade or two. And China has yet to adapt to that new reality.
1: Jeremy, thank you. And, uh, and if we can't meet up in Beijing very soon, perhaps we can arrange to meet on either side of a disputed Chinese border.
0: Absolutely. I will see you on the India-China border at some point in the near future.
1: Well, given that on our side it's Tibet, I will not be allowed there anytime soon, I think. But thank you to all our listeners. We will be back next week. And thank you to listeners who have written to us suggesting that we dive more deeply into the story of China's Belt and Road Initiative and how that is going. This was our first look at that giant scheme, and there'll be more. And remember, if you want to get in touch with us about anything, then email us at drum at economist Our editor is Poppy seabag Fury. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Brown produced this episode. Sound design is by Weidong Lin, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell.